Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutha Foundation was founded for this potential cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chata Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Perhaps I may yet die with my boots on. This was a statement made by Wild Bill Hickok, who actually did die with his boots on, by the way, shot and killed while gambling. Ah, the Old West, romanticized by some while angering others due to the atrocities of the acts towards our indigenous people. But one thing we can all agree on, for many years it truly was the Wild West. Every hero needs a story, and today we'll talk about some heroes that many still don't know about. These heroes rode through the pine forests of Mississippi and later the rolling mountains of Southeast Indian Territory, protecting and serving their Choctaw communities. They were the Isoba Omanili Tushka, the Choctaw Light Horsemen, and they were the law of our Indian lands during those Wild West years. Friends, I am super excited to introduce you to two historians that you must know, Ryan L. Spring and Nicholas Lee Wallace. Gents, welcome to Native Chalk Talk. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, I really appreciate the, um, the introduction. I appreciate being able to come and talk and share with you today. I'm, I'm really excited. Absolutely. Nick, I know you've been out and about uh, working with your horses and uh, getting some stuff ready for your son you mentioned earlier to me today. Yes, ma'am. And I just add on to what Ryan said, he couldn't said it better, but I really appreciate you wanting me on the show and all that. It really means a lot as far as that you picked me, Forrest, wanting to pick my brain today. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I can't think of two better gents to talk about this topic. There is so much, I've got so many questions for you. So hopefully you'll still feel that way afterwards. So buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> But I'd like our listeners to get to know you uh, more real quick. So I'll share about your backgrounds, and then we can jump into learning about the Choctaw Light Horsemen. Ryan L. Spring is a tribal member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and his family is originally from the Hugo, Oklahoma area. 
He has worked in the Choctaw Nation Historic Preservation Department since 2010 and has served as the GIS GPS Specialist Director and now serves as an archaeological technician. Super cool, by the way. I'm jealous. He also assists the Choctaw community in protecting and preserving Choctaw sacred and historic sites and assists the community in its efforts to revitalize Choctaw traditional culture and history preservation. In 2017, he received his MS in Native American leadership, and he's also a stickball player playing for the Choctaw Nation's Tushkahoma stickball team. Today, Ryan lives in Calera, Oklahoma with his beautiful wife, Kathia, and his two nieces, Amaya and Kinsley. And Nicholas Lee Wallace is from and lives in Hugo, Oklahoma, and is also a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. He has a degree in criminal justice, COP, from Eastern Oklahoma State College. He's married to his lovely wife, Casey, shout out to Casey, and they have three kiddos, Lane, Shiloh, and Rhett. In 2016, he began work at the Choctaw Nation Historic Preservation, and in 2019, he went to work for the tribal police. His historic passions lie in the realms of the Choctaw Light Horse and Choctaw involvement in the American Civil War. Also, something super interesting about Nick's expertise in history is he works in reenactments, including the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Civil War, and Choctaw Light Horse events. I've got to come see your reenactments, Nick. That sounds so cool. <laughs> but I should also point out that Ryan and Nick received an award from the Native American Journalist Association 2018 Awards for their article, The Modern Day Choctaw Light Horseman, 2017 Print Online Best Column, Third Place Award, Itifabusa, The Modern Day Light Horseman, Professional Division Three. By the way, um, Nick, what inspired your passion in history? It started oh, many, many years ago. I was probably about eight or seven. Uh, every year, we would go down to Fort Tales Historical Site. My sister and older sister, they were in the local FFA chapter there mm -hmm. at Fort Tales, and then Dad was an adult volunteer. They'd run a concession stand there. While, while there, every year they had what was a rendezvous. It was a mountain man fur trade event portraying what the mountain man did in the 1820s, 1830s. And I just thought it was so cool and everything because growing up, I didn't watch a lot of cartoons. I watched a lot of Gunsmoke cowboy movies and whatnot. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I wanted to be a part of that. And so I went to my dad and I told him, I said, Dad, I, I want to be a part of that. That is, that is just so cool. They're, they're out here and they're like real cowboys and everything talking about my cowboy movies and stuff mm -hmm. so he put me in touch with a gentleman named john davis and he used to be at the time i believe he was just the groundskeeper there at the fort he was low man on the totem pole but later on in his career john became the site manager of fort Towson and then retired out last year anyways um so john took me to the side one day took me into the museum and their back closet where they have all their gear for us to loan out to people oh, yeah. to where to get in the, in the time period. Well, he pulled out a Civil War jacket and a Civil War cappy, which was not related to the time period that the <laughs> event was supposed to be. But it made me feel like I was on cloud nine. I wore that jacket and hat with a badge of honor. And then after that, it just... I. I guess a fire lit in me and 
I started becoming involved in history more and more where other kids, they'd go to the library and they'd get Hank the Cowdog books or Goosebump books or something to read for us during their curricular activities. I was always going and pulling out history books. And I could understand it a little bit, but sometimes these history books, they use big words that a 10-year-old boy, 8-year-old boy can't really understand. But it was such a big involvement. And then I had a a good friend of mine, his name's Garrett Mustard, same age as me and everything. I started telling him about these events and stuff, and he just, I asked him one day, I was like, you want to go with me? And ever since then, me and Garrett would go to these events, and when we were younger, my dad would take us to events here, there, all over the state, Arkansas, Northeast Texas, and the passion just grew and grew and it's still such a big passion of my life today that even now it has bled over to my wife, my son Lane, Shiloh, and here soon, Rhett. Rhett's only been to one event so far, but we're going to break him in right. Oh yeah. It's in his blood. He can't help it. Yeah, he can't help it. So, and it's a big part of our, our family right now. That's on the way from picking Lane up from school, he was asking me history questions. And probably one thing that aggravates the, probably my wife more than any other family members. Anytime we go anywhere, I point out somewhere, I'll be like, oh, did you know on such and such date right over there, this <laughs> happened in history? Or, oh, there's a historical marker. Let's pull over and read what happened here on this day. And the wife, she, bless her heart, she is, 100% she backs us and everything she may not want to pull over on the side road but she does it for the family because she knows it's a big part of our lives so that's what got me started god bless her I I really I relate to everything you're saying except I think you've taken it to a whole new level I would love to get to that level as well but it, for me it's like grave graveyards I love visiting old graveyards looking at the old tombstones saying hello to the folks that were buried there and my husband's always like oh no not another not another tombstone but for those of us who love history I mean Ryan you're the same way and I've, I've got to ask you the same question in a, in a second because I want to I'm curious but for me it started when I grew up in Anadarko Oklahoma and there was this little place called the Anadarko Heritage Museum um, it's been called a cuff I think it was called the Philomathic Museum back in the day but they have some old native artifacts there that probably the Smithsonian would love to have. I keep your hands off of it, Smithsonian, but um, it's still there today. And my dad used to take me and I'd want to go every weekend if if he would let me, but um, same thing where I was just so inspired and I was looking at the old things and going, wow, people used to wear those shoes or we used to wear those moccasins or whatever it was. And it just really like planted a seed. Sounds like same in your life, Nick. So how about you, Ryan? What inspired your love of history and preservation so much that you've even made a career out of it? Sure. Yeah. I don't think I ever really had a choice in the matter. (laughs) Um, You know, my dad was a military historian. He focused on American military history, but Ah, um, he uh always had an interest in all sorts of military history all over the globe too. And, you know, growing up with that, I would always hear about American military history and we'd go on family trips and every time we'd go on a a trip it'd be going to some national park or state park or even city parks Uh it was always a fort 
of some sort or you know right. and you know I could never tell the forts apart you know, I didn't really have a, a grasp of it and I'm just like okay there's a fort it Thanks, looks like God. yeah I mean it, it looks like just like you know today I understand a lot of these fortifications were made with dirt work but back then I'm expecting like this wooden or stone fort and I'm just like it's a field you know, so, right. Yeah. Right. But, you know, exactly. growing up with that and, you know, like Nick was talking about having to pull over on the side of the road for every historical marker, um, <laughs> you know, it just kind of got in ingrained in me. And I, I just, you know, growing up, I always had an interest in history and I grew up playing a lot of video games. So all of my video games always, I, I liked the ones that were, had to do with like historical yeah. uh, accuracy in the games and, you know, my dad would play board games a lot when he was a kid. So a lot of the games that I would play growing up were some of the games that he enjoyed too. And then, so, you know, they started coming out with board games on the computers and we'd play those and it was always a lot of fun. That's but, awesome. Um, you, did you have like a favorite time period? I mean, I know what mine was. What was yours? Oh man, growing up, it was probably medieval history. It was probably like so my cool. favorite when I was really young. Yeah. But, you know, after I got older and I started getting more appreciation for like American history and how varied it is, mm -hmm. that's when I really started liking that French and Indian War, seven years wartime period. Ah, mm -hmm. sounds like we need to do a, an episode on that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, speaking of that, um, you know, I, I can't remember if I was in high school or I might have even been in college you know, like on a family, on a family trip during spring break or something. But I remember we, we spent um, a couple years in a row up in uh, Missouri. And while we were visiting St. Louis, we would hop over the river and over in Prairie du Rocher, I, I don't know how to pronounce the French, Prairie du Rocher. Uh -huh. um, there was this annual Fort de Chartres rendezvous. And it was yeah. the coolest thing ever. Cause I remember I've been to a lot of rendezvous and a lot of events growing up, but I didn't realize that this local event was so huge and how many people went there. Like you pull up and you parked and immediately there's just tents. You have people that are set up cooking. You have people that are set up just wearing normal fashion. Yes. I mean, everyone's everyone's camping there too. It's not like they're going back to hotels. They were living there in their tents in the fashion. And then as you're walking through this kind of tent city, then you actually go into the fort Ooh. and you see all the stuff that was going on in the fort. And it just, it really pushed me over the edge for just kind of loving that time period. And, you know, yes. at that time I knew I was Choctaw, but I didn't know a lot about it. So, you know, at that time period, it kind of, I, I got really interested in that French Indian War time period. And, you know, you have the romanticized last of the Mohicans. And I was just like, this is awesome. This is yes. amazing. I'm over here just cringing at young Ryan, but, you know, I just, <laughs> I was so excited. So in high school, I remember I did a research paper on doing equipment and supplies of the Revolutionary War soldier. And I'm a visual learner. And of course so I really you would do a paper. Like your, your, your teacher is probably like, where'd this guy come from? Right. I Pop mean, student. She, yeah. Oh, well, of course, you know, she loved me 
because I always had history questions and I was always engaged in the class and Uh all the other kids would roll their eyes, but you know, that's their loss. Um, I love it. But my dad always had these, my dad's a huge, like he has this massive library and he's always got books. He's got books on this war, on that war. And, but the ones I really enjoyed were these Osprey uh, men at arms books Mm. and they're like adult picture books. So as you're flipping through, they have all of these artists that have designed what the soldiers looked like, what their oh. equipment looked like, what the guns looked like, or, you know, what the cannons look like. And it, you could just flip through it. And, you know, my imagination would just roam from there. Isn't that just such a lesson for, for parents out there that we've got to put stuff out there. Like I used to love to look at my dad's Norman Rockwell books and believe it or not that, you know, those were American paintings basically, but he was an artist, but I also the encyclopedias. I loved looking at the encyclopedias, especially the one that had the snakes in them, (laughs) but just a a lesson for all of us parents, our kids are looking at those books that we have sitting out. It's important that we have informative, interesting things, pictures, all of that stuff. So Osprey publishing men at arms books, right? Is that what you called it? Okay. Yeah. And they're a British company. So they're pretty pretty cool um yeah i'd like to add on that too uh so kind of like ryan said i have such a huge military book collection I bet and i you catch do. my son going in there in there every now and then pulling books out looking at the pictures reading little snippets of something that he needs to know and then it's amazing of the time period we live in now as far as modern technology youtube he gets on YouTube It's say if he has a question about the American Civil War, he can punch it in oh, and yeah. there it is. So that, that's, that's awesome. my two cents to add on the thing too. So that is awesome. And I mean, obviously what's cool is not only does he get to see them on YouTube or, or ask questions or whatever, but he can actually go watch the reenactments. He'll probably do reenactments someday. <laughs> well, and it's funny because Ryan, I'm actually looking at, I pulled up on the Google that event you were talking about that's in Missouri or actually it looks like it's on the, it might be on the border. Cause it looks like it's, in yeah, Illinois. it's on the, Illi- yeah, it's in Illinois. Okay. I was like, it looks like it's still going on. That looks like mm-hmm. a fun event. All right. I'll post more information about that event on my native chalk talk, talk Facebook page as well. All right, please continue. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a side real quick, you know, off Nick was saying, and it's just, and what you were saying, and it's just, you know, a lot of our kids, especially growing up, if they do decide to go to college, they don't always know what they want to go to college for. And if they do want to go to college, you know, support them, but, you know, help them lead that direction. You know, I had no idea what I wanted to do for school. Mm -hmm. You know, I had no clue, you know, I had a computer background, I had a history background, but, you know, so I went in, you know, as a bright eyed, bushy tail engineer and realized I hated math and chemistry. Right. So, but I found a, I had a passion for like the history of human cultures. And so when I took my first um, cultural anthropology course, I was just blown away. I was like, this is amazing. I was like, this is super interesting. I don't have to do all this work on the weekends. Mm. Like I could, I can sit here, take notes and just get straight A's. You know, I was just like, this yeah. is I love this. So I had changed my major over to anthropology and that's what I eventually got my bachelor of arts in. 
But I guess what was most important about all of that is, like I said, you know, we, I had a disconnect in my family growing up about what it meant to be Choctaw. And so while I was learning about cultures, it kind of clicked to me that, you know, Hey, I'm Choctaw, but I don't know a lot about it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so I remember sitting there, I got out of class and I called my dad and I was like, Hey dad, what are you up to? And he goes, well, me and your grandpa are on our way to Tallahena. We both have appointments at the, um, at the hospital. And I was like, Oh, that's really cool. And, you know, my dad at that time, um, he was going to the diabetic wellness center and then my grandpa was just going for his checkups and, you know, because of that diabetic wellness center, my dad went for 20 years without having to take insulin to manage his diabetes. He learned how to, um, how to diet. And then, you know, he just worked off the medications and it it pushed off how long he had until he needed insulin. And, you know, I got to thinking about that and I was like, man, you know, the Choctaw nation has done so much for my family. And I said, I wonder if there's a way that I could give back. So I think it was around the summer of 2009, I was calling around the uh, Choctaw Nation and I was saying, hey, I'm an anthropology student. You know, is there anyone like that in the tribe that maybe I could job shadow? And um, that's where um, the Historic Preservation Department, I got in touch with them and uh, I drove down there summer of 2009 and for about six weeks I shadowed and uh during that time I got to follow the department around help with pottery classes help with history help with culture stuff and I was just like this is awesome I know were you just like drooling loving every second of it oh yeah it was amazing and then I got to reconnect with my family and Hugo because they set me up in a trailer out behind the house so I got to live with them and um get more involved with my, my family there. Cause they still live on our allotment there. And, um, uh, how, how funny that you may not have known that in Hugo. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, you know, I didn't realize that they were still living on part of my great, great grandfather's, you know, tribal allotment. No way. Um, and that's actually, it's kind of funny. So Nick and I are distantly related too, because he's <laughs> also related, um, you know, related in there too. And he grew up in a really, you know, really close by. So, to add on to what Ryan was saying about being distant kin. So when I was younger, <laughs> I was living at Wilberton at the time and I was needing more Civil War information far as what was the Choctaw's involvement in the American Civil War. I knew they were involved in the American Civil War. I just didn't know their total involvement mm-hmm. like I do now. And I was like, well, what better people to call than Choctaw Nation Historic Preservation Department? <laughs> so I called, and, and they put me in touch with Ryan, and I remember the only thing I caught from him was, my name's Ryan. Did not hear his last name. Right. And then he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll shoot you an email. And his last name popped up at the bottom, and it said Spring. I was like, wait a minute. So immediately, I closed the email out i called ryan back and i said question he said yes sir i said do you have family that lives in hugo he's like yes a matter of fact i do and i'm staying in hugo right now and i said well this might be hard hard to believe but we're actually distant relatives and i said that's where i get my choctaw side is from the spring family get and gave him the whole clue 
of my backstory of my family far as related into the Spring family. That's and amazing. Then, yeah, so ever since then, me and Ryan stayed in contact far as with history and any other family questions. And me and his dad get along great because he's a big military history buff, and so am I. So, yeah, it was kind of, I guess, a funny way of meeting a distant relative. That is so crazy. And I could swear the weirdest things like that happen. And I, I don't know if it's just a Choctaw thing. It's probably not, but I could swear in our tribe, there's all these weird connections that are so just close enough, but just far enough away that you're like, Hey, wait a minute. I love when that happens. And the good news is you call them out about it. Like, Hey, your last name spring, right? I'm constantly preaching that we all need to make fools of ourselves in order to find our relatives. <laughs> so you think you have a, a hint that someone might be a relative or might know somebody who knows somebody, put yourself out there, call the person, ask. I think a lot of people are afraid to, or they're so private. If, if we don't put ourselves out there, we won't know our own history. I swear to God. That's interesting. And now Ryan, you've been with the Choctaw nation for quite a while now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I did, I did some six weeks of some volunteer work and then came back the next summer in 2010 for three months. Part of that was volunteer. Part of it, um, I was able to get a little bit of pay Mm -hmm. and then I just kept coming back each summer. (laughs) So summer of 2011, I actually uh, moved down to Durant and, uh, I actually took, um, Choctaw language. Uh, I took two Choctaw language courses at Southeastern and transferred them up to University of Arkansas to finish up my, um, my degree. And then, um, yeah, they couldn't get rid of me. I just, I, you know, I stayed there and then that, um, well, it'd be that fall of 2011, they hired me full time. Um, but they had to give me a title because I was just kind of like, I was the cool guy that they hung out with, but yeah, cool great. guy isn't really a, you know, a good title. So <laughs> I think you um, earned it by then. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's when I got hired as a, a GIS specialist and I helped um, start the cultural GIS program that our department has. Wow. And, and yeah. how neat that I think Choctaw Nation is very much like that, where they see a talent or they see someone that's willing, that's a Choctaw member that's like, Hey, I can bring this to the table a lot of times they'll listen and find a spot for you. So, wow. Interesting. And then you guys were both approached by the U S Marshall's museum, right? Yeah. So let's see. I can't, I don't remember what year it was, but it was a few years ago. And I guess, uh, the U S Marshall's museum, uh, at that time was, uh, planning, um, building a museum there in Fort Smith. And they approached the intertribal council of the five civilized tribes. And so my, um, one of my bosses at the time contacted me and said, Hey, the Marshall's museum is wanting to do, um, an exhibit or maybe do some interpretation on the light horsemen. And they said, do we have a list of all of our light horsemen? And I said, no, we don't. I said, you know, that's something that, um, it, it would take a lot of research to get that done, um, more than, you know, we have time for. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, it's still a few years. Can we get started on doing something like that? So we kind of put our heads together in, depart- in the department and we said, you know, who would be, you know, really good, you know, kind of experts on this sort of thing. And at that time, there were some local 
they're really genealogists, but also kind of like amateur historians. And we went driving around looking at all these historic sites with them in southeastern Oklahoma. So we contacted them and say, hey, you know, we would you guys be interested in helping us try to get a list of all of our Choctaw light horsemen? And they said, yes, we would love to do that. Nice. So over the next few years, we kind of developed this volunteer research team and uh, we're able to get some money together to help, um, you know, pay their travel. So when they go to these different archives and um, Mm -hmm. museums and that sort of thing. But um, I do want to give a shout out to Francine Locke Bray, uh, Michael Bray, Kay Black, Sandra Riley Moore, and Gary Spring, my dad. They all um, came together over these last few years and have put together a um, as close as we can get to a comprehensive list of um, Choctaw, not just light horsemen, but Choctaw law enforcement. And um, wow, we, uh, yeah, it's it's you been go, super go, awesome. Yeah, Francine, yeah. Michael, K, Sandra, and Gary, thank you so much. Big shout out to all of y'all. So they, I mean, that had to have been tireless work because I, I told you recently that I had gone looking for such a list as well. And I was trying to figure out the names of these people that I thought maybe might some of my relatives might be in that mix as well. It's it's not an easy thing to find. So kudos to that team. Yeah, we we spent a long time going to these different places and just getting tidbits, you know, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, you know, we got pieces here and pieces there and pieces here. But I think what really helped us is when we went to the Oklahoma Historical Society to the Choctaw National Records, we looked at the treasure reports and the treasure reports listed who got paid and what they got paid for. Ooh. Anything that has to do with the uh, Choctaw government, federal government, any government around the world, they're going to keep books on where money is going. Mm-hmm. And so that was really, that's really what kind of helped us with it. That's a good little nugget right there. Interesting. So I, I am really grateful to both of you for joining me today. This is such an exciting topic to me, the light horsemen, and, you know, they're part of our Choctaw history. So tell our listeners so that they don't have to remain on the edges of their seats. What were the light horsemen? So In a nutshell, Choctaw Light Horsemen were the law keepers um, and the latter part of um, where Choctaws lived, you know, in Mississippi and Alabama in our homelands. And then they ventured out on the Trail of Tears and got reestablished and continued being that that law enforcement for Choctaws uh, up until uh, statehood. Well, even after statehood, technically. Mm hmm. Okay. So, so yeah. And we're going to dive deeper into all of that as well. So buckle your seatbelts, everybody. I think some folks that know about the light horsemen think that they were only Choctaw or were just from one single tribe, but all five of the civilized tribes had these lawmen like Choctaw, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Seminole, and Creek, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, they did. And some of them still call their tribal police force, uh, light horsemen. That's so uh, cool. Yeah. Choctaw nation doesn't. So, by the way, our title of the episode today has the words Isoba Omenili Tushka. What does that actually translate to? Isoba or Isihoba Omenili Tushka. Isoba is the word that we have for horse. Omenili talks about a rider and Tushka means warrior. 
So it directly translates to warrior who rides a horse. See, but now isn't you, that so cool? I yeah, love that. it's it is really cool. But what's beautiful about the Choctaw language is when you take these things in a context because it's a descriptive language. Mm. And what it literally is saying is that it's a warrior who rides on a Choctaw pony. Oh, because a soba, so cool. yeah, I mean, a soba is the word for horse, but in this context, it's talking specifically about Choctaw ponies because that's what these light horsemen rode. Wow. And that's actually something I didn't know originally that they actually rode Choctaw horses, mm -hmm. the Choctaw ponies. So neat. Um, so, you know, our Choctaw people originally came from Mississippi and uh, someone also as well from Alabama and Louisiana. And then they were moved in the early 1800s to Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. What was our government like in the original Choctaw homelands prior to removal? So at that time period in the early 1800s, Choctaw society was formed around uh, a concept that we call Ixa. So Ixa means your clan or your moiety, mm -hmm. but it also is the way that our communities handled law within each village. Mm. So, you know, people had freedom to do what the, you know, to do whatever they wanted. That's part of having that, that sovereignty that we as native people, as indigenous people, as indigenous Choctaw people have. There were laws within our society that helped regulate um, daily life. And our ICSA system was a part of that. So, I mean, you've got pre-removal, which means before what a lot of people know as the Trail of Tears, we call it the removal. So before that, though, when they were still in Mississippi and parts of Alabama and Louisiana, what caused that need for the light horsemen? Because of our ICSA system didn't extend to people outside the village. Um, you know, our system of laws and governance was mostly to village life. Um, there were people outside the village. So we had traders coming in. You had, um, you know, Americans that were coming and intermarrying into society and they didn't necessarily live in the village. Um, and then you had Choctaws that were moving out of villages to more of a pastoral type of life um, with cattle and horses and that sort of thing. So then you started having this new generation of people that were outside of almost the law. And there was, there was no way within society to kind of govern that. So one of the things that Choctaws decided to do was to create this system of these light horsemen. Mm. And these light horsemen would then travel around the Choctaw nation and help enforce the law. So Choctaws had to really kind of codify some laws starting out to say, okay, these are the things that are against Choctaw nation law for the whole nation. And they were the same laws that were in the villages, but we just kind of put them into writing. Mm -hmm. And then to create this force with the Treaty of Doak Stand, as part of that treaty, Choctaws were able to get an annuity uh, I believe of $400 a year that could be used to pay for this light horseman force. And so that was a way that Choctaws were able to say, this is something we need. And if the Americans are going to be taking more of our land, 
they're going to take it anyway. What are some good deals we can get out of it? So, of course, you know, we got education funding. That was a huge part of that treaty. But also it was funding to get this this light horse kind of service started. Nick, do you remember the gentleman that was over the light horseman at that time? Yes, around the first known captain of the light horse was actually Peter Pitchland, and it was in 1824. Is as far as what I can tell from my research and our research we did in historic preservation, that he's been about the first one we've been able to track down. And you know what's interesting about that to me is I never knew that that. Pitchlin was the leader back then in 1824. You know, he's a big name in the Choctaw history. And so that Treaty of Dokstan that you mentioned, Ryan, um, signed on October 18th, 1820, ratified on January 8th, 1821. You're saying that the Light Horse team was established after that. And it makes so much sense because when you're looking at those Western influences you talked about, it what a mess. It had to have been such um, a challenge to figure out how do we kind of, they're going to be here, these people that are invading our land. How do we ensure that we keep our people safe and keep them safe as well and have some laws of the land that would, that would actually work. And so with that treaty, so then afterwards you've got the light horseman Pitchland by 1824 is running the show and, and, uh, leading that team. But, it's interesting about the Treaty of Doak Stand because we know that there was this one certain president, <laughs> um, Andrew Jackson, uh, who basically didn't he turn his back on the Choctaw and and over time and he was making these treaties and then he broke them and then pushed everybody after you know after the removal started into Oklahoma. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on any of that, but. Tell us a little bit about Andrew Jackson and Pushmataha, who was the chief at the time, how they had to work through this treaty. Yeah. So as one of the survival strategies that Choctaw leadership came up with, you know, as Choctaw people, we're a defensive people and we're a diplomatic people. And, you know, in 1786, with the Treaty of Hopewell, Choctaw people went all the way over to the East Coast and made this, it wasn't just an agreement with the United States, but it was a bond. Mm. And we offered ourselves as brothers to the United States. So when the Creek Wars started happening um, in the 18-teens, Choctaws tried to stay neutral, but it wasn't possible. And so we fought alongside the United States. We fought alongside Andrew Jackson in his campaigns. Mm. And it's one of the first times that you actually see the Choctaw Nation as a whole solidify and raise warriors as one group. Ah. And so you could say it, it would be it's the first war that Choctaw has ever engaged in. When you look at modern western colonial wars mm-hmm. so Pushmataha, um you know raised this army of warriors and they went and fought along andrew jackson um and the americans and if it wasn't for these choctaw warriors acting as scouts understanding the terrain um understanding uh you know red stick strategy andrew jackson wouldn't have pulled it off 
and he wouldn't have had the acclaim and the, uh, I guess, the political intrigue that helped propel him into the presidential seat later on. Wow. And Choctaws even defended um, New Orleans against the British as well. Immediately after all this, in 1816, 1870, you have the Treaty of the Choctaw Trading House. And Choctaws were basically asked to cede more lands. And the majority of these lands were in Alabama. Of course. And the last treaty, the Treaty of Mount Dexter in 1805, said Choctaws would never be asked again to cede more land. And, you know, we said, no, we're not going to do this treaty. You've said that you've stated that, you know, you weren't going to cede any more lands. We just helped you fight. You haven't even paid any of our warriors. And now you want more land. And the United States said, well, if we wish to remain friends, then you need to cede this land. So at that point, you know, we knew that the relationship that we had formed with the United States was going south. You know, mm-hmm. early on in, you know, 1780s, 90s, the United States needed the Choctaw Nation. But now after the War of 1812, now that the British were no longer viewed as a threat, the United States didn't need Choctaws anymore. And that's when they kind of turned towards the West and this manifest destiny hits. And we realized that all these years that we had worked for this relationship meant nothing to the United States. Wow. Pushmataha has this beautiful speech during the... um, negotiations for the Treaty of Doak Stand. And he just calls Andrew Jackson out on all of these lies. <laughs> he calls him out on, you know, everything that he's doing. And, you know, Jackson was sent there by the U.S. president to negotiate this treaty because he knew Choctaws. Jackson didn't want to be there. He wanted nothing to do with us. He used us and he wanted to move on from us. But he was forced to come to Choctaw country and do this treaty. And it was just people were so upset about what was going on. Um, not just Choctaw people, but some of the, um, the American people were there at the treaty too. They saw all this going on and they were disgusted by it. And Choctaw, you know, Choctaw leaders already knew that this was coming. That's why we started building schools. That's why we started pushing towards education. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was actually in the Treaty of Doak Stand that we got what is the Choctaw Nation now here in Oklahoma was actually at the Treaty of Doak Stand in 1820. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it, it's a really important treaty and I really encourage people to uh, read through it and learn a little bit more about the treaty, but um, Absolutely. yeah, there's some great things in there, but like we talked about, that's where the light horsemen were established and you know, that's where, you know, that's why we're here. That's why we're at this podcast. That's right. That's right. And it's, I love that you guys are putting this together for me too. It's like, I know about the treaty of Doak stand. And then I know this piece over here about the light horseman. I had no idea that it all tied together in this way based on what was going on in history and, and also the settlers coming in and taking over land. 
Yep. Pocahomey or spiced water is the Choctaw word for whiskey. And waiting at the edges of Choctaw territory, there were those who wished to trade alcohol for horses. In fact, alcohol was a contributing factor to the creation of the light horse, correct? It was, you know, the alcohol trade is something that is crazy in the southeastern United States. And ever since whiskey started being traded to Choctaws, there's always been this negativity around the drunkenness of not just Choctaw people, but all indigenous people in the United States. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to understand that there's a lot going on here. So what's happening is, you know, alcohol was being traded, um, you know, long before the Americans. The French traded a little bit of it, and the Choctaw leadership understand early on this is not something they wanted in their homelands. So the French respected that decision and did not trade it. Um, they worked hard to make sure that their, their traders were not trading it. Really? The Spanish made promises, um, and they did an okay job, but they still let alcohol come through. Um, the British pretty much ignored that. And then the Americans actively pushed it. And because they understood the disruption that alcohol caused to our society, you know, part of, I guess, part of the strategy strategy for, you know, fighting the tribes in the Southeast was destroying them from the inside. And part of doing that was alcohol. So you have these trade houses that are set up along uh, the borders of Choctaw Nation. And the way these worked is Choctaws would come and they would trade for items and they'd take these items home back to their village or back to their family. Um, the chiefs primarily were the ones um, controlling what was coming into the villages and what was going out. But you know, tribal members still individually um, did a little bit of that as well. Well, what happened is the United States used these trading houses to rack up debt on individuals within the tribe. And then they forced the Choctaw Nation to settle an individual chief's debt oh. by the oh. use of land. So imagine today that uh, a Choctaw leader occurred an amount of debt within the United States government. And then the United States government would settle that debt by taking land from the entire tribe. Oh my God. When you put it like that, it's like, what in the world? What were they yeah. thinking? Extremely so illegal. And yeah, it's extremely illegal in today's sense, but back then that's what they did. It, it now, was wild West. <laughs> now, well, I'll get to that. I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> so imagine this now. These trading houses are racking up prices constantly to the point where you have a large group of Choctaw men that travel as far as Oklahoma to get bison and deer hides because we've already exhausted all of the bear, deer, and bison within Choctaw Nation. Mm. So we're having to travel to other tribes' land and other people's um, and then bring back all these others and then with inflation so high, they were inflating the prices so incredibly high that these men had worked all winter to get these hides and they couldn't be traded for much. Hmm. 
So what they would say is, well, you can't afford any of this, but we'll give you some alcohol. So the men would get alcohol and out of doing all that work and out of all that defeat, they would drink. You also have to understand with alcohol too, that in the old world, you know, people had 5,000 years to create cultural norms around alcohol. Choctaws didn't have that time to create these cultural norms of what's acceptable and what's not with alcoholism. And so it's, you see it running rampant through Indian country because, you know, Choctaw people are under a lot of stress. There's a lot of turmoil. There's all these things going on. The state of Mississippi putting pressure on our people, the United States government putting pressure on our people. And, you know, spiritually Choctaw people were struggling emotionally. They were struggling and physically they were struggling. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them turned to alcohol, not just men, but women as well. And that just radiates and it continues today. And it's all because of this cultural genocide. It was all planned and executed by the United States. And it still continued today by the United States. And it's a way that, you know, we don't have to defeat them if they can defeat themselves. So that was a long kind of rant about all of that going on. But now you understand why Choctaw leadership were so focused on getting rid of whiskey within Choctaw Nation. Absolutely. I mean, one, you mentioned earlier that they wanted to focus on education. So they started the schools. Two, whiskey's a problem. We, you know, it's, we're taking ourselves down by doing this, where the government's taking us down with that. And so the light horsemen were supposed to help with that whole whiskey thing and, and the issues that were coming from that. That's crazy. I again didn't know that. Yeah. One of the first laws ever passed in the Choctaw nation was the whiskey law. And that was banning whiskey from the entire Choctaw nation. Wow. And that's why the light horsemen were set up was to go out and get rid of whiskey. And by the way, that's why I have so many relatives that were whiskey peddlers (laughs) in jail a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. That was my family. You're welcome. Uh Um, It's really cool to see this. Um, the exhibit that the Choctaw Capitol Museum has in Tushkahoma on Choctaw Light Horsemen has a couple Choctaw Light Horsemen in the mural pouring out these barrels of whiskey into the river. I never paid attention to that before. Yeah, it's amazing. You'll have to check it out next time you go look at it. Definitely. I wonder if um, I even have some of some pictures of it from my visits there or something. But anyway, next time I'm there, I'm going to go take the picture of it. Yeah, go yeah. ahead, Ryan. <laughs> I was going to say, Nick, did you want to add anything? to what we were talking about well on that uh, as far as the whiskey coming in even when we moved to indian territory or what is now oklahoma southeastern oklahoma there was a big problem with whiskey also coming in from texas and arkansas we even saw it after the american civil war it was still such a big problem like you said, it's like, well, here's a jug of whiskey. I'll, I'll trade you this jug of whiskey for four horses and a saddle and whatnot. Huh. It was, even then, after removal, it was still such a huge problem when the tribal government came to Oklahoma. And that was one thing that the Choctaw Life Horsemen were still trying to stomp out um, from previous past. Mm-hmm. So that's... Yeah. 
that that's my two cents added on to that. Yeah, so interesting. So it was coming from all sides, basically. They were covering their bases. <laughs> so definitely, well, I, I actually have more questions about the whiskey problem in a minute. Tell us more about the role and the authority of the light horsemen. So within Choctaw villages, we had our own ways of settling issues, settling disputes and matters. And so there would be a judgment that was made by the village and by the community. And then that sentence was then carried out. But outside of that community, we didn't have a process for that. So that's why light horsemen, uh, there were no appeals. They settled all disputes. They made arrests and they carried out sentences. They did all of these things because we didn't have a system in place at the time <laughs> for it. So basically you have these light horsemen that are, if you think of a, a policeman today, police woman, whatever, can you imagine that police woman also being the judge, the jury and executioner, <laughs> you know, that it's basically what was happening, right? Yeah. And, and that's something that um, people like to use that label, uh, judge, jury and executioner. And it, it does work, but that's from the perspective of Western historians. Mm. And, you know, these these light horsemen were all chosen by the community. You know, these are people of high respect by the community. Interesting. It would be no different than today for as electing your county sheriff. The community came together and they elected who they thought would be the best individual to represent law and order in their area. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So they were highly respected. They were selected by their tribe to go out and do these things. And then the laws that they enforced, they had, this was really surprising to me when I was reading some of your research between the two of you, that the laws enforced really did have some pretty hefty consequences, right? Yeah. So, you know, theft, adultery, murder, and, you know, being caught with liquor, these were all uh, at the time, this is what, late 1820s, um, early 1830s after removal. Um, these were all 39 lashes. Wow. So and, if I, if, if my husband went and slept with someone else, he would get 39 lashes, right? I mean, I feel like he should get more than that, but, <laughs> but that's, well, I mean, that's pretty heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting. I was doing a presentation one time and I asked elders, I said, why do you think it's 39 lashes? Hmm. And everyone was real quiet in the room because I had asked this at previous presentations too. And, you know, one of the other elders and they said, well, it's 40 save one. Oh. And I said, well, what does that mean? They said it's Jewish mosaic law. Oh, really? Yes. It, it, it's based on that mosaic law because it was the missionaries that helped the Choctaws come up with the concept of the light horseman. Oh. So of course, you know, the punishments for breaking Choctaw laws are also based on Mosaic law. So okay. thus 39, 40 save one, because in Mosaic law, you didn't want to go over the limit. Mm -hmm. So you would do one less than the limit. Oh my goodness. I had no idea. But, but what's funny about that listeners, what you're going to hear in a minute is remember the 39 lashes, because 
I don't know what happened at some point. I'm going to ask you all about that once we get to it, but it seems like that kind of went out the door and the lashes got to be more and more as time went on. And they started discovering more laws that they needed to make based on different crimes that were being committed. Now to keep this all in perspective, this was all prior to removal. So starting in 1831, the Choctaw were starting to be removed by the federal government from their homelands, the place where their ancestors, you know, going years and years back had been on a journey now known as the Trail of Tears. So the Light Horsemen were also then established in Indian Territory, now called Oklahoma. Tell us about that period between 1838 and 1860. Sure. So after removal, the Choctaw government was quick in kind of setting itself back up. So in 1834, we passed our second constitution. And within that constitution, it set up for the Light Horsemen. And so during this period of 1834 to 1838, the Choctaw Light Horsemen were still acting as they did prior to removal. However, in 1838, um, we had our third constitution. And when that was done, they started making adjustments to um, Light Horsemen. So part of the 1838 constitution was establishing courthouses. And Choctaws were big on, um, you know, fairness within society. You know, we see that within our traditional ICSA system. And so Choctaws took that system and took the kind of Western American system and created their own system of courthouses. Mm -hmm. So now Choctaw Light Horsemen are just You know, they're settling disputes and they're making arrests and they carry out the sentences made by the court. Okay. So it's adding that extra protection to our citizens. Which was probably such a relief to the light horsemen. You know, you can't do everything. You can't wait on tables and seat people and be the chef in the kitchen. Well, I can't imagine the burden that those people took as well. I mean, these are, these are some of, you know, these are people that are held in high respect and they have a burden of making all these decisions. Oh my gosh. Right. And you know, that takes a toll that takes a toll on you. So yeah, having these courthouses to help help with these issues, you know, was the right direction to go, not just for the people, but for the light horsemen as well. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, around this time in 1834, again, the Choctaw nation government was established there were three districts or counties, Apukshinubi, um, Moshlatubi, and Pushmataha. And then, as you mentioned, with the courthouse and the sheriff handling those daily affairs for the local people, um, that kind of freed up the light horsemen to do what they needed to go out there and do. Um, and so how many light horsemen were there out there at the time, do you think? So in 1834, the new Choctaw constitution was ratified. And part of that constitution um, created three districts within the Choctaw nation. There was the Apukshinubi district, the Mosholatubi district, and the Pushmataha district. And all of these three basically mirrored the three traditional districts we had in Mississippi with the, um, the Oklafalaya, the Ahipat Okla, and the Oklahanali. So, 
you know, the, the three great chiefs of those, of those three original districts were then named in the new districts here in Choctaw Nation Indian Territory. And then what happened is there was a courthouse established in each district. And then, yeah, that courthouse then assisted light horsemen in, you know, their role. So part of the constitution um, put six light horsemen per district. So six, 12, 18 light horsemen for the whole Choctaw Nation with two-year terms. Um, your tribal judges would make decisions in the court, and then the light horsemen would carry those decisions out. That makes total sense. So uh, again, just what a relief for the light horsemen to be able to go out and actually do their job of um, keeping our people safe. And then, so in order to do that, though, what kind of equipment were they using at the time? So in 1834, the light horsemen, uh, they would have brought what they had from home, whether it be a bow and arrow. Uh, if they were well off, they would have probably had a flintlock rifle, flintlock pistol. They were so self-funded, like a lot of our law enforcement are today. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really just what they would have had. Uh, some of these guys at this time period didn't really even have a saddle. They they rode bareback or they walked to wherever they had to go to. Really? Oh uh, my gosh. Yeah. So it was one of those things where, yeah, you don't carry to cover. And if you don't have the means to get there, but you got two good feet, you better start walking. So, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so basically, with some of their gear they would have had, would have just been basically whatever they could afford. Wow. So, Nick, I have another question for you. What would their saddlebags okay. have contained? So, with saddlebags, it's going to be, like I said earlier, as far as with equipment and changes over time. So, their saddlebags primarily would have contained a pencil, piece of paper to take notes, maybe if they were lucky enough to have a map of the area. But most of the gentlemen, like modern-day law enforcement, they know the area that they're covering. Mm. Uh, would have had a couple of days rations because when they left from home on horseback, they were gone for quite a bit of time. So sometimes it may be a day, maybe two weeks, depending on what case or what they're doing. Uh, uh, in the saddlebags, too, there would have been stuff to take care of their horse's feet, say maybe an extra horseshoe or two. Mm-hmm. stuff to make fires like flint and steel um, maybe some extra ammunition but most of their ammunition too was also well this is later on life horsemen uh, with the invention of the cartridge which i'm sure we'll talk about that here later um, just general supplies say like it'd be no different say if we went modern day camping today with a survivalist backpack mm-hmm so, because you got to think there's hardly any homesteads between here and there during this time frame. So, it was basically you're out on the wild by yourself. So, whatever oh you my would gosh. need to make a camp. I kind of pictured them roaming around together, but it could be that they were separated out there doing all this stuff on their own. And it sounds like they would be out there for sometimes several days at a time, right? Yeah, Choctaw Nation was vast. You know, it was a very large area. Mm-hmm. And with six people to cover a district, you know, that's not a oh lot of gosh. light horsemen, <laughs> you know, to cover one area. 
Right. And one of the reasons they were called light horsemen is because they had to be ready. You know, think of your local fire department. They have to be ready on, on, on point. If there's an emergency, they are the first responders. Wow. That's what light horsemen were. And that's kind of how their name develops because they packed very light. They rode these very lightweight, small ponies. You know, they didn't have to be shooed. They were really agile in a mountainous terrain. Hmm. And you can get down low and get from point A to point B very quickly. But to do that, you can't carry a lot. Wow. Go Choctaw ponies. They're the best, aren't they? I was going to ask you if you have any Choctaw ponies. I did at one point, but I had to get rid of it due to financial concerns. I'm in the process of getting some more land and a barn, and I plan on getting another Choctaw pony. And one of my Choctaw light horse pictures that's online, I'm actually riding on a Choctaw pony out of the Kaimishi Mountains. Oh, but to, wow. So to add on to only being six light horsemen um, for each district, these light horsemen also had the power to go in to, say, a community and deputize if he needed extra hands, too, to help him out with whatever he's trying to accomplish. Say, like if it's catching a bad guy on down the way and he knows this bad guy's armed to the teeth, he can go into a community and say, hey, I need volunteers right now. If mm-hmm. you don't come help me, you're going to fa- face XYZ penalty. And there's no accounts of people denying a request from a light horseman that I have personally found. Anytime a light horseman has went into an area and said, Hey, I need your help. The community has always backed them up 100%. Wow. So that's amazing. It's one of those deals. If somebody's out there that has information, well, this person said no to a light horseman. This was a punishment he got. I would love to hear about that. Right. (laughs) Totally. Wow. It must be fascinating to do all the research y'all have done on this topic. So back to the topic of whiskey, Choctaw Nation laws around whiskey were very strict. And back when in the day when it was 39 lashes, eventually it becomes a hundred lashes by the light horsemen. Um, And I think there was a wide hickory stick that they were using on the bare back. Um, And is this correct, Ryan and Nick, 30 inches long and half an inch uh wide yes yes um so with that being said so it'd be no longer than 30 inches long done on the bareback the general rule of thumb was a half an inch round or no bigger than the light horseman's pinky uh the thinner it is the more it hurts too yeah so the way it was done is they would remove the shirt obviously to get to the bareback they'd place him on a whipping stone sometimes they would tie him to the whipping stone or they called it i found several accounts where they refer to it as a whipping post or a whipping stone so i guess it just depends on what courthouse she was at if you got a stone or a post a lot of times they would just lay you across it or they'd tie you to it and then they would proceed to give you the lashes for whatever crime you have committed so say like with this one being whiskey so 100 lashes say if you only made it to 50 Mm -hmm. okay and you passed out from your injuries 
the white horseman at that point would then pick you up, clean you off, dress you, do whatever they need to do to tend to your wounds that you abstain from receiving that punishment. So you're only at 50. I, I want to keep this in mind. Okay. They would then tell you, hey, on such and such date, you need to return back to the courthouse to receive your other 50 lashes. Oh, my gosh. So That's the worst. They would, right. So they would only proceed to give lashes until you have fainted or passed out. So say if you made it at 99 and you passed out, you have to return at a later date to get the last one. Now, <sighs> I did find the secondhand information where it talked about one Choctaw that survived all the lashes, and they considered him great, uh, strong man and all that because he withstand all the lashes at one time. He did not have to come back at a later date. Hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I, I think that I probably would never commit the crime again if it had to do with lashes. I, I, I don't know what's worse, you know, 30 days of jail time or some lashes. Oh, so as time has gone on and more crimes have been committed, the penalties become stricter and there seems to be more laws around the various new crimes arising. For instance, murder in Mississippi, was 39 lashes as we talked about, but not anymore. And I'm going to read to you from some of uh, the research that y'all have put together. Murder got the death penalty. Um, treason would result in death. Accusation, 60 lashes. Don't be accusing people of stuff. That's not true, I guess. <laughs> Arson, 39 lashes. Perjury, $10 to $100 or 39 lashes. I think I'd pay the $100. Rape, 100 lashes, or second offense, death. No stickball or horse races on Sundays, or you have to pay 10 bucks. Grand larceny, $25, second offense, death. Kidnapping, branded tea, and 100 lashes. Oh, so they'd like brand you with a tea for kidnapping? Yes. What did the tea stand for? That's a good question. Huh. All right. That is a very good question. It's just one of those things I have never under understood why they did a t yeah it must have been a choctaw word or something started with a t or something i'll, I'll look Maybe. on that as you guys are yeah okay uh sodomy death resistance with deadly weapon death wow resistance with deadly weapon you would literally be put to death interesting so that's in the case of choctaw committing crime on choctaw land so what about in the case of non-Choctaws? So the ways that the agreements work with the federal government is that if a non-Choctaw before the Civil War um, came into Choctaw Nation, they could be um, basically taken back to Fort Smith and then given to um, the Americans there. And then they would do their own kind of uh, trial. So that's because we didn't have the authority to send people through our own court system if they weren't our own people. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So someone comes into Choctaw territory and commits a crime and they're non-Choctaw, they would stand trial in Fort Smith. Yeah. Which was the closest okay. federal court. Now, okay. after the Civil War, we weren't allowed to arrest them anymore. It had to be a U.S. Marshal. 
So ah. with the Treaty of 1866, um, we lost some of that sovereignty and U.S. Marshals had to apprehend them and we could assist, but we couldn't apprehend them ourselves anymore. That's why we had so many outlaws come into Choctaw Nation at that time. Oh, and we have some interesting outlaw stories coming too. And we need to talk about Fort Smith in just a minute too. So you mentioned the entrance of the American Civil War. Would you explain to us what times were like for the Choctaw during that Civil War? One interesting thing with about accusation is that particular law was focused around accusing someone of being a witch. <gasps> really? Because at that time, you had a clash between traditional Choctaw beliefs and Christian beliefs. And if you accuse some of being a witch, um, Donna Akers explains it a little bit in her book, Living in the Land of Death, but witches weren't human. So from a Choctaw perspective, if you found a witch, you would kill them and you wouldn't suffer any wrath because they're not human. Because it's a witch. Yeah. It's a witch. However, sometimes people would accuse women of being witches to undermine them within the community. And that could have, you know, issues where that person, if you accuse someone of being a witch, they could die from that accusation. So right. if it's an unfounded oh, wow. accusation, then that's where that law comes from. They must have learned something from Salem. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Stop accusing people of being witches if they're not witches, man. One of the things about uh, grand larceny that's interesting too is grand larceny that included horse theft. Oh, really? Horses were so integral to Choctaw society. Yeah. You know, a lot of people's wealth was centered around horses. It was a huge issue with um, removal as well. Wow. But yeah, stealing horses was, um, yeah, fell underneath grand larceny. Oh my gosh. That was such a big deal. And it really, like you said, it really shows how vital the horses were to the community. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was civil war. With the American Civil War and Choctaws getting drug into the war, you know, there was a lot of issues that went on during the war. Um, you know, Indian territory is being raided, not by Confederate troops, but also Union troops. And then you have non-Choctaws that are coming into Choctaw Nation and raiding. And, you know, compared to the other tribes, Choctaw Nation had a standing army. And... So it wasn't as bad in Choctaw Nation as it was for like the Creek Nation and the Cherokee Nation and the Seminole Nation. But still a third of Choctaw people were left destitute after the war. Part of that is, you know, with the men having to be mustered, you know, they're not tending to their crops. And if they're not there, if they're not planting their crops or if someone's raiding and destroying the crops, I think there was over... There was a few hundred thousand cattle that was stolen out of Indian territory by both sides. Wow. But the, the biggest thing is that law was destabilized within Indian territory. But I want to be careful with that because there's two things going on with this law being destabilized. After the Civil War, Choctaw Nation is moving back to um, how it was operating before the war. So you have the light horsemen. Um, they're back in action, you know, they're doing all the things that they need to do. But part of the issue with this lawlessness 
is that was something that was being pushed on Indian territory by Americans. Because what happened is if we can undermine the tribes and say that it's lawless, that they can't police themselves, then that gives the Americans authority to come in and police the tribes for them. Ah. So a lot of what's going on in Indian territory after the civil war, and you know, you have all of these outlaws coming in, but they're being managed. You know, all of that's being managed by Choctaw light horsemen Mm -hmm. and by the Rangers and by the sheriffs, but American media is trying to push this kind of political agenda on Indian territory. Of course. Interesting. No surprise there, right? Yeah. It's not the first time that this has happened in Indian territory. Hmm. So within that time frame, it sounds like things were a little shaky. So what, what happened with that? You know, I, I know that you mentioned outlaws earlier. Sounds like that's one of the things that came from that time frame. Yeah. You know, so there's, you know, laws destabilized a little bit. You have, um, like you said, outlaws, there's um, refugees. There's actually quite a few refugees. Um, I, I was doing research the other day and there was a refugee camp of Muscogee Creeks that was over by Meade, Oklahoma. Really? Yes. And there was one over in um, Solomon Tonica's area in Wright City up on the Glover. Uh-huh. The name for the Glover is Chalaki Bok or Bok Chalaki means Cherokee River. And that's because there were a group of Cherokees that came down and settled on that river. Now, most of the time after the Civil War, Choctaw Nation would come and ask these people to return back to their tribes. You know, they have their own land, they have their own place to live. So we would help assist them, get them back on their feet, and then ask them to return back to where they came from. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we still had refugees that were pouring into the area because of everything that was going on during the war. But there's an overall lack of food as well, again, because of crops, you know, Mm. a lot of Choctaw men weren't there to help manage planting and gathering the crops. The community isn't really there to help gather the crops. You know, this isn't, Choctaws aren't practicing American agriculture at this time. They're still practicing um, forms of their own communal agriculture. So the war really destabilized the way that Choctaws planted and gathered communally their foods. Ah, makes sense. To add on to the American Civil War, it's really setting up far as the outlaws coming to Indian Territory, like Ryan discussed, uh, because the American Civil War in Indian Territory, not only did you have tribes fighting fellow tribal members, say the Cherokees was fighting amongst themselves. One side was on the Union side, the other side was for the Confederacy. But you had different states coming into Indian Territory. You had troops coming from Arkansas, Texas, parts of Louisiana, Missouri, Kansas. You have these different people of walks of life coming into Indian Territory, and they start discovering the lay of the land from being on the march to go to point A to point B. And they're discovering that this land's here, and they're like, well, maybe depending on what happens with the war at the time, I might need to make some extra income, rob a bank, say, in Arkansas. 
I can flee over here because <laughs> I know this cave's here and I can hide out in this cave. Yeah. Another reason why that this is my personal opinion, the reason why we have so many refugees coming into Choctaw Nation is majority of your Civil War battles in Indian Territory took place in Muscogee Nation or Cherokee Nation. A lot of your major conflicts took place outside of the Choctaw Nation. So you have people still to this day, they're fleeing from a conflict and they're going to what they consider a safe spot. So they're coming to Choctaw Nation, which there's no battles taking place here, and they are refugeeing here. Another thing that the Life Force did at this time and this second-hand information, so I haven't found any hard evidence, but I'm still working on that part, is they were also looking for people not supporting the Confederacy during this time. So they're looking for spies, uh, people coming in and trying to disrupt the Choctaw way of life. And if they found somebody, and this dates back to the treason from earlier times, Mm -hmm. They were put to death. Uh, An oral story that was passed down is up around Tuscahoma is that some Choctaw white horsemen found some spies and they hung them in a barn. And another story, and this once again takes place up around Tuscahoma, was apparently the Union Army had made it all the way to Tuscahoma and the, the Union soldiers raided the small farmstead and stole honey from this Choctaw woman and stole, I think, a couple of pigs and a few other supplies. They were out scavenging. Mm-hmm. The live horseman approached the commander of the force and said, hey, y'all stole from this lady. Is there a way y'all can pay her back? And the union officer said, yes, uh, here's X amount of dollars. I have no definitive proof on it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's one of those stories that it's passed down. Uh, so and I've interesting. Always found that in, exactly. For as that these light horsemen approached us, what they would consider an enemy force and said, hey, look, you did this wrong to this tribal member. You need to make it right. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. Well, no, you mentioned no. the passing. Um, it was a story that was passed down. And I know that sometimes with those kinds of stories, it's hard for us to know, like, how do I prove that that happened? It was a story that in our culture, that's what we do. We pass those stories down by word of mouth. And a lot of times those stories are disregarded by historians because again, no proof or whatever, but I think they're very powerful. And even if we put them kind of in a middle ground gray bucket, we can at least say we don't have proof yet, but this was passed down as a story in this family. So we at least need to acknowledge it, you know? With the oral histories that are passed down from family member to family member, you know, at one point there is, it was probably 100% true. And then this family member added onto it. So there's always some little truth nugget in those. I find, I'm not one of those historians where they say, well, this is my family's history. I'm not going to brush it off to the side immediately and say, oh, well, it's not written in a textbook by somebody. <laughs> by a non-native. <laughs> right. So, you know, I always hold those stories dear, but 
I have no definitive proof on it. So therefore, once I can't say, well, this yeah. actually happened. Yeah. So, and I yeah. think it's something for our listeners to, to understand, you know, especially if they're not from a type of family that passes the stories down and stuff is, is yeah, we have this gray area in our culture where we have to, you know, make those little disclaimers sometimes, but, and also stories can get more exciting as they get passed down too. <laughs> so, you know, we're always trying to keep that in mind as well, but I love those stories that we hear from people that they're like, my great, great, great grandmother has been telling this since the 1700s. And so that's well, cool stuff. I like those stories. Yeah. It makes sense too, because, you know, like Nick's talking about, there's those nuggets of, mm-hmm. you know, what Western people would say truth within these stories, yes, but yes. if you understand Choctaw culture, you understand how Choctaw people are and you understand our history, you know, that story that Nick just told, it's absolutely true because again, these light horsemen are some of the most respected people. These are people that live the Choctaw way. They follow really? the Hinahanta or the, the mm-hmm. bright path. Mm-hmm. They see, you know, their job is to stand up for the community. And so if they see a wrong, it doesn't matter how big the enemy is. It doesn't matter what odds they face. It is their duty to protect our people and to protect our laws. So, you know, from my, from my understanding of, you know, Choctaw history and culture and how these light horsemen are, that story sounds so legitimate because that's how our people were. That's how our light horsemen were. I love it. And they were empowered to do those things, to make those decisions. So, so fascinating. We need all the stories. Keep them coming. <laughs> when we were doing light horseman research, I had a gentleman call me and he said, um, yeah, it's been passed down in my family that, you know, one of my great grandfathers was a Choctaw light horseman. And the story that he would tell is they rode all the way from Tushkahoma to Fort Smith to pick up a stamp press. And then they escorted it all the way back down to Tushkahoma. And that was the tribe's first stamp press. Oh, really? And Yeah. And, you know, at the time I was like, wow, that's a really cool story. That's really great. Thank you for sharing. And then over the years, I've thought about it more. And, you know, this would have been the tribe's first stamp press. So when they would do an official letter and then they would stamp it to emboss that paper, that's what they were using to help add to our legitimacy as a sovereign people. Yes. What's even true. more amazing is that when I go to the Choctaw Nation Capital Museum, they have a stamp press in the exhibit. And it oh. makes me wonder, is that Was the that stamp the one? press? Uh, we have to know. That this Somebody gentleman's great grandfather went and got. And it just, oh, it gives me, you know... Goosebumps, you, know, you guys. I get goosebumps right now just thinking about it. Right. Oh, see, man, if if only those little those objects could speak and tell us their history. That's so interesting. I wish I remembered who the gentleman was because you know at yeah. that time when I when he told me the story I was younger and I didn't take a lot of notes and right, you know right. when I was focused on something I was just focused on that one thing. So he told me the story on the side, but now I just, you know, I wish I would have written that, written that down. I wish I would have 
been more mature to understand what a gift that gentleman was giving me and giving our people. Isn't that how we are when we're younger? I mean, same. I look back, I'm like, dang it. That was an important story that my great grandmother told me or something. Yeah. So if anyone's listening to this and they happen to know that one of their ancestors was part of that story, please contact us. Let us know. That's a definitely cool piece of history right there. You mentioned raiders and outlaws earlier. Tell us about those pesky armed men known as the bushwhackers. So before we get into that, I think there's a little bit of clarification that uh, I want to make. So, you know, Choctaw Light Horsemen have always had a presence in Indian territory. And, you know, there's this overall ambience of this lawlessness of Indian territory. And part of that was kind of a political misconception. And, you know, Choctaw Light Horsemen were always, you know, acting as that armed guard here in Indian territory. All the different tribes had their light horsemen, including the Choctaw Nation. You know, they were active throughout the Civil War as well, trying to protect. But what happens is after the end of the Civil War and that reconstruction time period, um, you know, there's, there's more devastation to the country. But also what you have is, you know, you have a lot of people that now don't have a life to return to after the war. Mm-hmm. So they start moving towards being outlaws and renegades and that sort of thing. But also what you have is with the Treaty of 1866, light horsemen no longer have jurisdiction to remove non-natives from Choctaw Nation. Instead, it has to be a U.S. Marshal. So Choctaw Light Horsemen assisted U.S. Marshals, but now these outlaws and renegades understanding Mm -hmm. that Light Horsemen have no jurisdiction can come and move in. For the most part, they were left alone because they didn't get involved in our business. And so as long as they weren't affecting our people and our communities, then that was up to the U.S. Marshals to come and get them. That makes sense. So with the Quantrill gang, it's a big misconception is after the Civil War, there was this Quantrill gang and whatnot. But from my understanding and reading, it was actually, they were more during the Civil War. They were, they were known as bushwhackers. They were men that they fought in the brush. They had pop out, ambush the enemy, hop back in the bush. So from my understanding through my research and stuff is the Quantrill gang was more of a unified unit during the American Civil War. And then afterwards, they kind of disbanded. And then you got Frank and Jesse James, famous outlaws, often referred to, Jesse James is often referred to as Robin Hood of the West, steal from the rich and give back to the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have any definitive proof that he had any encounters with life force, but we know he was in this area. Even during the American Civil War, part of it, he was riding with William Quantrell, hence Quantrell Raiders or Quantrell Gang. But more Quantrell is more his guys during that during the American Civil War was referred to as Quantrell Raiders. We know they were in this area during the American Civil War because there was counts where they went all the way down to Sherman, Texas, and even over into Paris, Texas. Mm. And then we have 
famous Robbers Cave here in Oklahoma now, mm-hmm. where Jesse James, Bell's Star, they they hit out, which is pretty much in the heart of Choctaw Nation. Um, like I said earlier, we don't have no definitive proof. And it goes back to what I said earlier in the show, where during the American Civil War, you had all these guys coming from different parts of the United States, from Missouri, Arkansas, Texas, coming into Choctaw Nation to fight for the Confederacy. They they knew the layout of the land. They knew, well, there's a cave two miles up the road. We can hide out there even after the Civil War, that that's a good spot to hide out from the law. As soon as they figured out that, okay, the light horse can't touch us, only U.S. Marshals can. And most of these Marshals, they came from different parts of the United States. So they didn't know the area as well as most of these outlaws did. So Mm -hmm. there's an advantage when it comes to an outlaw hiding out in Indian Territory. Right. I can't even imagine what a crazy wild west it was back then with that kind of thing. Having to look out for the bushwhackers, um, those differences between who commits a crime on native or non-native land, that kind of thing. And then also we have changes that come along post-Civil War. Uh, The Civil War ends in 1865 and the Choctaw Nation continues on. So tell us what the world looks like between then and 1894 for the Light Horsemen. Sure. So, you know, right before the Civil War, um, there was a series of constitutions in the late 1850s and the, um, and then in 1860. And Choctaws are trying to, you know, again, they're improving their process of law. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at, at this point, they had 18 light horsemen running around, six from each district. Um, but I think they were still spread too thin. So Choctaw Nation realized, um, especially for its courts, that it needed more. So what it did is it divided up the districts. We still had our districts, but divided them up into counties. And each of those counties had courthouses. And then each county was assigned one sheriff and one ranger. The sheriff handled all of the um, personal affairs for everyone in the county. Um, that had to do with people and society. And then the rangers handled anything that had to do with livestock and farming, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So what that did is it changed the need for the light horsemen and shifted them from, you know, their, their previous role, uh, which was now taken over by the sheriffs and the rangers to a different role. So the light horseman's role moved toward acting as peace officers and messengers. Each district, as well as the principal chief, was allowed to have up to six light horsemen who could be used to assist the county sheriffs and the rangers or used for special assignments. The county sheriff would call upon the district light horsemen to assist with making arrests or carrying out sentences made by the Choctaw courts. So when it came to that death penalty that we've talked about before, what was happening with that at this point in time? At this point in time, just like Choctaw Nation, as Ryan said earlier, as far as adapting and evolving, at one point with the death penalty, the light horse, I believe it was in the eight, up until the 1850s, around that time frame, they were actually hanging people. You know, you see cowboy movies, outlaw gets hanged, the 
big old spectator event, uh, Judge Parker hanging people left and right. Well, during this time period, I guess the Choctaw Nation felt that that was almost kind of cruel and unusual punishment. So what they decided to do is they would shoot the person and steal death, which most of the times, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about it here in a minute, one shot did the job. So the way they would perform this act is they would they would say, okay, on um, this day you will be executed. They will give them the sentence, say the court finds them guilty, and they give them the death sentence, and they say, okay, well, six months from now, you will be put to death. They would release the tribal member. They'd go home. They'd take care of family affairs. They'd get the crops ready. X, Y, and Z, whatever they had to do to help their family out before they are executed. And then, of course, they'd go home, do that. There's no records indicating at this time where a tribal member ever did show up to the death penalty. They'd show up on that day. There would be a crowd of tribal members, of family members, to watch the execution. They would blindfold the individual. I found two accounts where they'd either place a playing card over their heart or a white cross. They would then tie him to the whipping stone or whipping post. And then they, the light horseman, there would only be one. He would aim at the cross or the card, take one shot. And generally that was enough to make the bad guy outlaw deceased and go from there. And like I said, here in a minute, I'm sure we're going to talk about the famous last execution. Yes. 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 I mean, it's, that's such an interesting thing that they would go take care of their affairs and then they'd show up to be, to be, you know, take their sentence. So that tradition goes quite a far ways back um, into Choctaw culture. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that Choctaw Nation didn't have um, many jails before 1860 because they weren't needed. Mm. Choctaw people have this tradition of, you know, always returning for their, for their execution. And a lot of Western people were always kind of confused by this notion. Why wouldn't you run away? Why wouldn't you get out? You know, why wouldn't you, you know, do these things? And it was about, it was about honor for that individual and it had to do with honor for the family as well. But it's deep-seated in these Choctaw traditions that have to do with how you're judged when you die. So we have these deeper traditions that talk about when you passed away, you're judged at your death. And if you, you know, followed what's called the bright path, then you would be judged well and you would go on to the upper world or go on to heaven. So these kind of cultural traditions continue with Choctaws, even though, you know, the majority of the tribe had moved to being um, Christian by the time of the 1860s. These traditions are still being upheld and used in society. Also, if, if someone did flee from their execution, uh, a family member would be put in their stead. So, oh. you know, let's say... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So let's say that an individual is supposed to go to their execution. They were given their time and they didn't go. 
well, then someone else in the family would have to cover that debt. Wow. So you definitely want to show up unless you are just definitely not a good person. Yeah. And like Nick said, it's extremely rare um, for someone not to show up because, you know, because of our deep cultural traditions, we didn't fear death, Mm -hmm. you know, like we do in today's society or, you know, that we do in Western society. For Um, sure. Death and life are all a balance. They're all a part of each other. And for the cycle to continue, those things always happen. So we talked about jails a little bit. You know, after 1860, there started being more of a need for jails within Choctaw Nation. So part of that is because, um, again, marshals coming in and needing areas to hold some of these individuals who didn't follow, you know, these Choctaw cultural values. But also we had a lot of, um, you know, we had a lot of intermarried people that um, weren't raised on these values either. Mm -hmm. So jails became a little bit more commonplace uh, after the 1860s. And there were several jails spread out uh, across the Choctaw Nation. Some are still around today. Yeah. And some of them are these little buildings. We were just talking earlier about a little bitty jail in Tamaha. And, you know, still standing today, you can Google it and see a photo of it. We talked a bit about some of those troublemakers, like the bushwhackers, and some of the light horseman stories don't exactly directly tie into some of our notable gang members that were in Oklahoma at the time, but they, they were at least both in the same areas at the same time, which is kind of cool. So because Oklahoma history is chocked full of so many of these really well-known uh, troublemakers. I'd love to hear more stories about some of these notable outlaws. Just a couple. Let's start with Bell Star. Yeah. Okay. So Bell Star, a very, very interesting character in my opinion, especially within the Choctaw Nation. You know, like you said, Rachel, there, there is no, at this time, no confirmed records of her getting in a shootout or even all history as far as light horsemen getting in a shootout with bell star um we know she was in this area due to robert's cave um she also did a lot of running around with that younger gang which like what we talked about earlier they were in these parts during the civil war and then after the civil war and you know they always refer to robert's cave as bell star's hideout and all this mm-hmm. I personally, that's my personal opinion, I think Cole Younger actually knew about the case way before Bell Star did, and he may at some point showed her the case, and she thought, hey, this is a good place to hide out. I'm going to hide out from Heck the yeah. White and the U.S. Marshals right here. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to the, the cave site, but it's a perfect setup for yes, somebody hiding out from the law. <laughs> Because you got to take that long hike up, uh, which that's for walking on foot. But there's multiple ways to go on horseback up to there. And there's a lot of vantage points to see, okay, somebody's riding up here. And then they have one section that says horse crowd. I don't know if the sign's still there, but it is a perfect place to stable your horses, say overnight. Um Another thing I think is neat about Bell Star, she's actually buried here in Oklahoma in a little town called Porham, which is, I want to say maybe 45 miles from Wilberton, maybe a little bit more. Uh, 
And one thing I always think was crazy about Bell Star is we think outlaws riding in a cowboy saddle or a roping saddle. What would you picture a cowboy riding? She performed all of her acts with a side saddle. And I don't know how many of your listeners or how familiar people are with the side saddle, but that's a feat in itself, riding sideways <laughs> on a horse and and doing all this on right? horseback that way. It's always impressed me, I guess, as far as that goes. Right. <laughs> yeah, my sister actually just sent me some photos back in 2020 uh, when she went to see the Bell Star. I guess it was house and graves gravesite. Um, so I, if I get her permission, I'll put those on our my native Chalk Talk Facebook page. But please continue. She was, I mean, she was such a well known outlaw there, and such a cool chick, you know. Uh, my cousin, when I think it was her, it was one of her great grandpas or something like that. They were going through some of his things at some point, and in his wallet was a a newspaper article about Bell Star when she died. And I mean, it was really interesting to see that it was a newspaper from that time and he had taken a clipping and he stuck it in his wallet how cool is that okay go ahead well just to kind of conclude on bell star i think it's like a lot of the outlaws in this area after the american civil war there was so much in the south and indian territory there was so much distrust in the federal government where people in this part of the world they were looking at these folks as robin hood they were most of the time they were taken from carpetbaggers or the rich northern northerners that were moving down here. And there's such a romanticized feeling, in my opinion, down here in the South that, well, they would never steal from their neighbors. They were only stealing from people up north. Not condoning that stealing's right, but that's the way they were viewed in this part of the world is oh, well, they're not taking from us. They're taking from somebody that has a lot more money than us, and they're from the North, and we don't like them. Right, right. <laughs> I see what you're saying. That I guess you would say that's my rap on Bell Star. There you go. You know, when we talk about Choctaw Light Horsemen, one of the, the biggest things we're talking about is sovereignty. And part of, you know, what sovereignty means is your ability to control your borders you know to control people coming in and people coming out so the choctaw light horsemen assisted with that kind of you know that transition along those borders so but it's just like anywhere else you know when you're going from country to country so if there was an outlaw um, that was fleeing Fort Smith into the Choctaw Nation or fleeing Texas up the Butterfield stage across, you know, let's just say Colbert's Ferry into Chickasaw Nation and then Choctaw Nation. You know, if they're fleeing Texas or they're fleeing Arkansas, you know, those local jurisdictions like the Texas Rangers, they wouldn't have jurisdiction anymore once you cross into Choctaw Nation. Mm -hmm. And they would have to go and ask for a U.S. Marshal to come into Choctaw Nation. So, you know, again, talking about before the Treaty of 1866, Choctaws were able, they had more control of these, you know, any outlaws coming in and saying, okay, you know, you don't need to be here, you need to leave. And they, and they could rightfully do that. 
But after the Treaty of 1866, our light horsemen couldn't do that anymore because they weren't native, because they weren't Choctaw or because they weren't Chickasaw. Oh. So they could just come right in across the borders if they wow. could get by, you know, across these ferry crossings or, you know, across these borders. So you, you look at the Choctaw Nation and it's set up, you know, pretty interesting. So the whole southern boundary is the Red River and the Red River is a large river. So there's only certain fords and ferries that you can get across. So Choctaws and Chickasaws had pretty good control of that transition, you know, individually with families that, you know, they controlled these, these fords and these ferries. You get in up north towards Fort Smith and you have the Poto and Arkansas River um, and the Canadian, and those helped as a northern boundary. Um, but that eastern boundary with Arkansas that was disputed for decades, you know, that border was easier to cross in and out of. And, but however, a large part of that border is very mountainous and very hilly. Mm -hmm. So if anyone's going to come in, they're going to come in through maybe the Southeast corridor or over near where Poto is, you know, so, you know, right. either over where Poto is or Eagle town, you know, that sort of area, because those are defined roads for people to come in on. So those could be easily kind of controlled as well. That makes total sense. I didn't even think about those borders. And I mean, how in the world do you manage and secure those areas, especially with a limited amount of light horsemen? My other two thoughts to add on the ferries and crossings is like Ryan was saying, you have the Red River to the south the Canadian to the north, but you have that big stretch between what we know now today as Oklahoma and Arkansas. There there was plenty well-established routes that a, an outlaw could come in or even go around, and it goes back to them being bushwhackers to the American Civil War, that they knew that, okay, well, I can go on this road for two miles, and then up here is a little side track or a little side road or a little side trail I can cut off and I won't be discovered by nobody for 200 300 miles yeah. or whatever I know that's a huge huge amount of miles but they knew the area and they knew where they could dip off to dodge light horsemen or lawmen say if they were even bringing goods say whiskey into Oklahoma you know, we, we still we're talking about outlaws robbing other people, stealing banks or stealing from the banks and other people. But also during this time period, whiskey was still a problem coming into the Choctaw Nation during this time period. And these whiskey peddlers knew these routes that they could take to avoid light horsemen and U.S. Marshals and whatnot. That's my, that's my two thoughts to add to it. Yeah, absolutely. So interesting. I just can almost picture it from what you guys are saying. You know, so we're, we're talking about, you know, borders. One of the big things about the Treaty of 1866 was it allowed the U.S. federal government to build rail lines through the Choctaw Nation. It also formalized not just the Butterfield stage route through Choctaw Nation, but also the California road. So what's happening is now, after the Civil War, you have a lot more foot traffic coming through Choctaw Nation, whereas 
because you know because these were actual roads anyone could take the road through the nation as long as they didn't leave the road so it made permitting harder for the Choctaw government to say who's allowed to be here and who's not yeah. allowed to be here oh because people are yeah because people are traveling back and forth and also trains with so trains coming through you know, you have workers that are working for the train one day and then not for the other. So if they're smuggling in, you know, on a boxcar or if they're coming in as, you know, a railman or a coal miner, you know, there's just a lot of, there's so many non-natives coming into Choctaw Nation after the Civil War. It gets harder and harder for the Choctaw Nation to manage that, especially when they've been stripped of their sovereign right to manage that yes. by the U.S. government. So, you know, we talk about this lawlessness in Indian territory, and it was caused directly by the U.S. government Absolutely. as a way to destabilize Indian territory and eventually create the state of Oklahoma. That makes total sense, especially as we get more and more into the early 1900s. It just probably was a bubbling up of a mess. It turned into a mess. Although, like like we've said, though, you've made it clear that Choctaw Nation actually had some good, clear rules and punishments. It's just that these outside influences created some chaos. I wonder if there were people that actually had to go all the way around Oklahoma to get to the west of the state. <laughs> had to go around, couldn't go through. I think that was probably the case before the Civil War. Don't forget, too, during this time period, we also had a cattle trail that went through the Choctaw Nation that pretty much, from my understanding, followed what we know today as the Texas Road, which the cattle trail was known as the East Shawnee Trail. It went through Fort Washtenaw, went right through Boggy Depot, Perryville, and then North Fork, Fork Town, and then all the way up into Missouri and Kansas. So you also have that super high, highway, which I think they renamed it at the war to the East Shawnee Trail. Hmm. So you also have all these cowboys, which cowboys, that time period versus what Hollywood wants you to think cowboys are, are two different things. Cowboys, they were, they were boys. And what they did is they pushed the cattle through and they were young, most of the time orphans didn't really have no place to go and they were they worked these trails and I'm sure when they came through the Choctaw Nation they gave our people maybe a hard time but there's no once again there's no oral story or written down accounts of these cowboys being hard on our tribal members or anything but they were these cowboys were rough characters I guess is the base of the story yeah I had no idea. You know, you always watch, I used to watch the movie, The Cowboys with John Wayne. And there were a few young boys, but mostly it was men who had been doing these uh, runs for years. And they were trying to teach the younger kids to buck up and be tough and all this stuff. And um, it, it is funny how Hollywood makes it look, but I had no idea that there were orphans in there and younger boys who that's a rough, rough world for such young people. Yeah. And to do these cattle drives, they had to apply for permits from the Choctaw Nation government to be able to bring their cattle through Choctaw Nation. Ah. And, you know, all these permits by traders and cattle drives and coal mining, you know, all this stuff created revenue for the tribal government since we didn't tax. 
Oh, okay. Interesting. So that could eat into your cattle yeah. profit. So you had to think about that as you got your permitting. Right. And I was about to say, it's, it's a double-edged sword where, yes, you have these rough ends coming into the nation, but at the same time, it's going to benefit your tribe to a certain degree too, whether now or later on in life or as generating money. Um, but I was going to add too, you know, I'm a big Gene Autry fan. You know, yeah. most people think a, a cowboy's always singing on the back of fours. Yeah. You know, <laughs> respect everybody's walk of the cowboy way. But during this time period, it it was not. You know, they were they were in horseback from the time as they started their drive to the end of it. When they stopped and rest, they were either out doing outlaw stuff, maybe, but it all goes back to there's no written records or oral stories that I've came across where these cattle drives cause problems for the Choctaw Nation. I'm sure that that's where your rangers come into play is, okay, well, they're pushing cattle through here and they see a tribal member that has a couple of head of cattle. Well, we're just going to scoop these cows up too and these cows are going to go with us. Mm -hmm. uh, but once again, there's there's no records of it. And, I keep saying that a lot, and I feel like I'm I'm failing almost as a historian because they didn't take the small little time to write something down. Well, on such such day, Jimmy Joe Jack got his cattle stolen at Middle Boggy by somebody passing through. Right, right. Well, Nick, they did write all that down. So what had happened is... And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but when the Choctaw Nation government was dissolved in 1906, they seized all of Choctaw Nation's records and took them to the BIA building in Muskogee. In the 1930s, over 10 tons of BIA records from all the five tribes were burned. I almost have to like cover my ears when I hear that story because I want to cry. All of our records, not all of them, but a huge amount of records are just gone. Yeah. What little is left was um, the Oklahoma Historical Society had heard about this and they ran to Muskogee and they grabbed uh, as much as they could from being burned. And that's what we have is, for example, the Choctaw National Records at the Oklahoma Historical Society, as well as the other tribe national records. Oh my God. Wow. I'm glad they did what they did. And I guess I was never aware of that. And that just, I feel like I can go throw up right now. I know. I, if you need a minute, take your time. We understand. I uh, only heard that I, recently I, too I, from I, Megan Baker, you know, one of your historians there. And I, I just about wanted to cry. Well, it's, it, it all comes down to cultural genocide again. You know, it's a way of, you know, when you destroy a people's history, you destroy their identity. You sure do. They, and they just didn't care. It just shows how much they were disregarded. Wow. You okay, Nick? Do we need to come over there and pick you up? Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> we should call tribal police. Yeah, call tribal police. <laughs> <laughs> He's well, not laughing. <laughs> I, I'm good. 
I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I promise I'm good. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just awful. It's heartbreaking. I, I think about a lot of the ancestors that I've been trying to, the biggest reason I try to find my ancestors is to tell their stories and keep their memories alive. It's the only thing I can think of to do in their honor. And I think about how many of them were their records destroyed and I'll just never know. Who knows? So since we're on a roll of telling stories of outlaws and fairies too, one of my absolutely favorite historical fiction writers is Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer. Her book, Traitors from the Choctaw Tribune series, book two, tells the historical fiction story based on a true story about both whiskey runners and Choctaw light horsemen. What I like about this story is how it paints a picture of what it was most likely like back in the day, because like Ryan and Nick, she does hundreds of hours of research down to every detail. And then she puts it into these great books. I'll be sure to list her website on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page. so You can check out some of her books for you listeners. I'm going to read to you from her book, Traders. So to set the stage, you've got some outlaws making illegal whiskey runs. Um, my own family members did the same. So they were in, uh, went to jail for the same things. But remember how we talked about the drinky drink being outlawed in Choctaw country. Anyway, we have Cub Wasm on his paint horse, Frank, and then we have Frank Bean and Lester Cotton and their team, and, and they're heading back from a whiskey run. But the Choctaw light horsemen were on their tail, ready to carry out justice. So these are a couple excerpts from chapter six of Sarah's book. It was a long haul across the Red River from Texas using Hawkins Ferry. The ferry chugged slowly towards the Choctaw Nation side of the river. The 20 minute ride was the longest of Frank Bean's short career as a whiskey runner with this gang. The men watched the woods to see if light horsemen, the Indian police, waited in the shadows. Before the ferry landed, Cub Wasm gave a wild yell and spurred his big paint off the side. The horse thrashed through the water. Lester whooped and followed. Frank made the leap behind him. The other two men yelled curses, but Frank ignored everything except staying as close to Cub and Lester as possible. They charged toward the woods at the top of the bluff. The other two lashed their horses to chase them down, but to Frank's surprise, Cub and Lester pulled up short of the bluff. The other two charged up it. From the woods, three men galloped out, firing six shooters. The drunk men shouted, Choctaw Light Horse. Lester turned his horse in a circle and grumbled, what do you expect, a tea party? He spurred his horse up the other side of the bluff and disappeared into the trees. Frank's horse reared and he flipped off the back end and landed hard. His horse galloped after Lester. Frank picked up his rifle and looked up to see one of the light horsemen aiming at him. He ducked, but the next shots came from behind him. Cub Wasm rode up to Frank while firing at the light horseman. He released his trigger grip to offer a hand to Frank. He gripped Cub Wasm's wrist and hoisted himself up behind him on the big paint pony. Cub fired two more shots before spurring his horse up the bluff. Frank looked back through the choking gun smoke to see two Choctaw light horsemen staggering around the dead whiskey runners and their horses. The lawmen were injured, though still on their feet, but the third lay flat out. Cub's aim had been deadly. I feel like that just gives us kind of a, do you guys feel the same way? It gives us kind of a picture of like what it could have been like with, a, a, you know, light horsemen um, trying to uphold the law. There's people coming off the ferry. There's people coming over the border. There's these whiskey runners and it's just kind of an interesting time. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, again, what's really cool about Choctaw Light Horsemen 
is it's a modern adaptation of our warrior society. You know, so True. as you know, you know, as Choctaw people, we're a warrior people, but we're a defensive people. We're a diplomatic people unless threatened. And that's exactly what the light horse did is, you know, they did what they had to do to be diplomatic, to be patient, you know, to follow all these Choctaw cultural values until them or our community was threatened. And then when that happened, you know, they let loose yeah. and they did everything they needed to do to protect our people. Yeah. Just because our Choctaw people are known as being good and fair and trying to set up and follow laws doesn't mean that they're pushovers. You know, we're, we're proud, strong people and we will uphold that law um, to the best of our ability, you know, as, as per the light horsemen. All right. So back to our history of the light horsemen, it's the late 1800s. I believe there's some turmoil going on. Tell us more about that. Sure. So at this time period, the United States is focused on trying to get rid of Indian territory. They're, they're trying to create um, the state of Oklahoma. So part of this is done through the allotment process. And the allotment process starts in the late 1800s. And I won't go through all the details with allotment because it's long and it's complicated. True. And, but basically what happened is the U.S. government wanted to break up native lands to help bring in the state of Oklahoma. And to do so, they were focusing on destabilizing Indian territory, as I've been talking about this entire time, trying to make it look like um, native nations couldn't police themselves passing laws and treaties to make it harder for us to police ourselves, you know, trying to create this idea of lawlessness in Indian territory that was there, but it wasn't any there any more than anywhere else in the U S at yeah. this time period. Yeah. Part of doing that was then the newspaper started focusing on Choctaw light horsemen, you know, focusing on things that were happening in tribal governments. And this is where in 1894, you hear about what's nowadays called the last execution. So there's a famous true story called the last execution about a man named Silent Lewis, but there are some conflicts about the story too. Tell us, tell us that story. Sure. So in 1894, Silent Lewis was arrested and found guilty of killing Joe Hoechlin Lutubby. As per Choctaw tradition, Lewis's execution was set for several months in advance, allowing him time to get his family affairs in order. So after those few months, Lewis showed up to his appointment date in Wilberton, and he asked that his friend Sheriff Lyman Pusley do the execution. So again, you know, executions are to, you know, before this time they are carried out by the light horsemen. However, you know, now that we had the counties, it was up to the sheriff to do the execution. But also it, it dates back to an old Choctaw tradition where you could ask a friend to do the execution so that there was no bad blood between the family. Um, no one would try to seek revenge. Um, it's an old honored tradition that was still practiced up, you know, up until this time. However, Pusley shot and missed Lewis's heart 
So Pusley had to place a handkerchief over Lewis's mouth to suffocate him. U.S. newspapers went wild over this story and just talked about, you know, the brutality of it and, you know, all these things, you know, going on. But a lot of what was really going on at this time period was that non-natives were upset at the fact that we had the right to carry on our own laws separate from the United States. They just, they focused, the newspapers focused on, you know, Indians as savages at that point and how savage this execution was. And, and again, this was all propaganda to destabilize Indian territory. And it, it worked well, but, you know, they, they talk about this as being the last execution, but as Nick is going to explain, it wasn't. There was another execution done by the Choctaw Nation in 1899. Throughout my research, I almost think William Goings, who was executed in McCartan County, was actually one of the last executions. Uh, and he's a very interesting character. It goes back to what we were saying earlier about how the a tribal member would always show up to their execution day. Uh, I read a deal where Goings, he went off and he played professional baseball. He was a renowned baseball player. And then after his baseball career, then went to Cuba. He fought in a Cuba war. During that time, during that conflict, uh, he also married a lady. Uh, they had a small family together. And then one day he approached his new bride and said, hey, I have to go home and take care of some family affairs that need to be taken care of. She tried to convince him to stay. He didn't go into details from what I, I was told for it's why he had to go back to Choctaw Nation. He then boarded a ship, uh, came back to what we know as Oklahoma today, which is McCurtain County. And he showed up for his execution on that day and never told his new bride why he left Cuba and had to come back to Indian Territory. Oh. So it all goes back to that honor thing. Mm -hmm. A quick bit from one of the articles we talked about earlier from Itifa Bussa, um, that was written by the gents on here on this podcast today, uh, the modern day light horseman article that they wrote in 1906, the United States government dissolved the Choctaw nation, as well as the Choctaw light horsemen. Thereafter, the United States chose the principal chief of the Choctaw nation until the 1970s. With the sovereignty of the Choctaw nation stripped, the federal government's Bureau of Indian Affairs, or the BIA, managed the Choctaw people. It was not until after the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act was passed in 1975, the Choctaw Nation was able to elect its leaders and to manage itself once again. By 1979, the Tribal Council created the Constitution of the Choctaw Nation, reestablishing our own sovereign government. Within the next few decades, the Choctaw Nation began taking over BIA responsibilities, including law enforcement. Although our Choctaw tribal police no longer wear the red ribbon on their hats as the light horsemen of old, they do wear a badge of honor that instills in them the sacred duty of the Choctaw light horsemen. Our tribal police work hard to ensure the protection of our tribal members, tribal employees, and the sovereignty of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. 
And now we have some really cool news coming out of Choctaw Nation, who recently announced new nation tribal police patrol cars. And these new cars have a historic photo of the original Choctaw Light Horseman from the Antlers, Oklahoma area in 1893. And that's courtesy of the Western History Collection. And the design on the side says, Apokochi Mitja Intoksoli, which is protect and to serve. And then uh, the other one means in God we trust. And it says, Chehowa Il Anokcheto. The new design is important as it pays tribute to both culture and history, said Choctaw Nation Chief of Police, Jesse Petty. According to Petty, there are currently 17 new patrol units across the Choctaw Territory, and they plan to release 24 more as they become available. What a great way to pay tribute to those who came before us, the Choctaw Light Horsemen. And may our tribal police continue their good work serving our tribe, and may they be protected as they do so. As we near the end of our visit here, are there any native causes or businesses that you gentlemen would like to promote? I do have a new business that I want to promote that's here in Durant, Oklahoma. It's called Sundrop Books. It is a local bookstore that focuses on, you know, your mainstream books, but also it focuses on local authors. Oh, how cool is that? Including Choctaw authors. So David and Taylor both went through the Chattapreneur program um, to get their bookstore set up. So take a look on Facebook for Sundrop Books. They have a wonderful story about how they came up with the name. That's fantastic, Sundrop Books. David and Taylor, thank you so much for bringing such a cool bookstore to the area. I can't wait to visit it myself. Nick, any causes or events or businesses you'd like to promote as well? Absolutely, Miss Rachel. Uh, I encourage people to go out and visit their local historical sites. So I live in Hugo, Oklahoma, which is dead center of Choctaw County. You know, we we have so many sites here that people don't realize that pertain to, say, not only Choctaw history, but the community's history. So like Fort Towson, it was one of the ending stops of the Trail of Tears uh, People claim that the American Civil War actually ended here with the with the with the Cherokee Confederate General Stan Whitey surrendering here, uh, which there's some dispute that he surrendered at Fort Towson or Dokesville, which Dokesville is another site that I'd encourage people to go see. At one point, mm -hmm. it was the Choctaw Nation capital, and it housed over 10,000 people during its heyday. Uh, with that being said about Dokesville first weekend in October, they are having a candlelight tour, which is awesome. It is a play done at dark, done by mm. a candlelight tour, uh, which this year they're talking about famous people that have came through Dokesville in uh, years past. It's either been about a Choctaw family struggle during the American Civil War or life horsemen actually capturing an individual. Uh, highly recommend checking that out. Uh, you can contact 4,000 Historical Site. Just punch into your Google 4,000 Historical Site, Oklahoma. It'll pop up. Call them. Get on the reservation. Highly recommend it. Um, another shout out I'd like to give to would be Fort Washtenaw Historical Site. It's over next to Durant. Uh, it was. It'd be the third oldest fort in Oklahoma. Hmm. Uh, 
It's owned by the Chickasaw Nation. They do great things out there all the time. They're having different events. They have a Facebook page. Highly recommend checking them out. So those would be my my shout outs or recommend checking them out. That would be fantastic. In fact, I had not been to the Candlelight Tour, so I plan to do that this year, as well as the powwow that's maybe like a weekend or two after that, I believe. Um, so definitely check those out, y'all, on the Google, and I hope I'll see you there. That would be fantastic. So going off what Nick talked about, um, you know, Fort Washita is in my area. I live here in, in Calera. And uh, it's a great place to, you know, take your kids out to. They got lots of events and stuff throughout the year. Um, but also if in, but also if you're in the Atoka area, I highly recommend the Atoka Museum and Civil War Cemetery. It is um, an amazing place to learn a little bit more about Civil War history. It has a lot of local history on the American Civil War in Indian Territory that you can't find anywhere else in the world. So I highly recommend. Really? visiting yeah and it's got a, a nice big picture of reba mcintyre on the sign you hello can't <laughs> look for um, that as a marker okay i also want to give a shout out to the chata foundation um if you want to record your family story like nick was talking about you know with your grandparents or your aunts and your uncles your parents or even your own story i highly recommend reaching out to the chata foundation and getting those stories recorded also, the Veterans History Project done by the Library of Congress is another great place to get your veterans stories recorded. So if you have a, um, you know, a family member, male or female, that you know, has served in the armed forces and you want to get those stories, again, the Library of Congress uh, Veterans History Project. Fantastic. Those are such good pieces of advice for so many of us who are looking for that information, as well as I love the idea of the, you know, people reaching out. If you're Choctaw, reach out to the Choctaw Foundation. Seth Fairchild runs that organization in a fantastic way, and he truly cares about the preservation of our Choctaw people's history and stories and all that. So please do get with the Choctaw Foundation to um, do that for sure. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to, well, there's multiple people involved in my path of history. Uh, John Davis would be one. Um, my father, Robert Wallace, for passing down family history to me. You know, if it, if it wasn't for my father telling me about my family history and knowing where I came from as a Choctaw, I would have never met Ryan and would have never picked up that hey, we might be related and they're reaching out to Ryan. Mm. And then Ryan also introduced me to another gentleman that made my history passion even go further into a, my little round for his 1800s history. And that would be Robert Cass and then Dr. Ian Thompson's another one. And then everybody in the historic preservation crew, you know, I consider the historic preservation crew as my family um, often refer to one member of the historic preservation crew, Don Sandridge, as my second mother or my Choctaw mother. And she refers to me as her adopted son. And, Aww. you know, if it wasn't for knowing where I came from, from my father, I would have never met all these wonderful people that Ryan has introduced me to, including you, Miss Rachel. 
uh, like I texted you saying, hey, this is the first podcast I've ever been on. I always listen to podcasts, but I've never had the opportunity to be on one. And I just also want to say thank you so very much, Rachel, for allowing me on your show. And I hope there may be another opportunity on down the way that I can be on one of your shows. So thank you. Absolutely. And thank you. I mean, I, I've just been so honored that I have true experts about the light horsemen here with me. I didn't know originally where I was going to go, but I knew we had to get the light horsemen talked about. And so for you and Ryan to really know what you're about this history and that you love it as much as you do, this has been fantastic. So I, I thank both of you too. My gosh, really appreciate it. You know, the fact that you guys love what you're doing and you were willing to do this with me, that's a huge deal. So thank you. So, and finally, what words of wisdom would you like to share with our listeners? I guess one thing I would like to encourage, say, tribal members, it doesn't matter if you're Choctaw, Cherokee, whatever, listen to your elders, to the stories they have, because a lot of times these stories are not written down. They are passed down from generation to generation. There's one of the regrets I have in life, and I was a young man. It's my great-grandmother. She was Porter Choctaw. She took me to a family cemetery. And at the time, I didn't realize what she was doing, but she would say, well, this is your, your uncle. And he did this in life and everything. And at the time, I thought, eh, oh, well, it, it doesn't pertain to me. But now that I'm older, it does pertain to me. And I wish I knew what I knew now for it. Take the time, remember that, ask her questions, because my great-grandmother, she's no longer with us, and there's been countless times, well, if I had a couple of wishes, that would be one of my wishes, is to wish her back to life, where if nothing but a day and a pencil and paper, and write down all my family history, because a lot of times our family history is passed down through oral tradition, and I'm now passing down family history that my dad's telling me uh, for us, well, this is what your grandfather did on such, such mm -hmm. day. He stopped here and whatnot. What, I guess the main point of my gab is remember your family history, because that is ultimately where you have come from. That could not be more well said. And I'm with you a hundred percent. I kind of got goosebumps when you were talking about it, because I feel the same way about my great grandmother who passed when I was in my late twenties and same thing where not only do I want to just go back and hug her and feel her hands again and be around her, but just really soak in that history. So I take that to heart. I hope others will too, Nick. That's such great advice. Thank you for sharing that with us. Absolutely, because it's one of those things. Today, we live in such a go, go, go society, cell phone and everything. And then we think, well, we have tomorrow. We have tomorrow. But tomorrow might not be there. So it's one of those deals where I try to live in each day when I wake up. I try to live in that moment and that day. So that that's my biggest take is just live in that day. If an elder approaches you and they have a story to tell you, yes, try your best to remember it. If you got to pull out your cell phone and say, "Hey, hold on, let me let me jot this note down because I find this really interesting." You know, if nothing else, it's always safe. Maybe you might not be interested in it, but the future generation 
not be interested in it. And I guess that's my wrap up of all this oral history or, well, these these records were written down, but they burnt. It's always nice to have a second copy of the record. True. Good point. Because we may not always be guaranteed those records, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, from what Nick said, you know, history is so important. When we look at Choctaw identity and we look at ourselves as Choctaw people, as Native people, as Indigenous people, um, it doesn't matter who you are, um, if you're Indigenous or not, you know, as people, we have to know our history. And not just the history of our people, of our culture, but our family history. Understanding where you've come from helps point you in where you're going. And it doesn't matter if, you know, the history of your past is positive or negative. You know, understanding the people that walked before you can help give you direction in life and where you need to go. So my passion for what I do stems from all the things that you know my father and then all the people here in historic preservation have taught me over the years but on top of that you know once my dad got into genealogy and I started learning more about my family it just added on to that passion you know knowing you know how influential my family was um, in the creation of the Choctaw Nation to today understanding how influential they were in the creation um, of Hugo, Oklahoma, and wanting to honor my ancestors helps give me the passion, the courage, and the ability to keep pushing forward and to keep trying to make that next generation of Choctaws more successful. So I really thank you, Rachel, for this opportunity. And I thank everyone, you know, all of your listeners. Um, and I encourage you all, even if you're not, you know, that interested in history, uh, learn a little bit, learn enough to be able to answer the question, who am I? Thank you, Ryan. Oh my gosh. Very, very good. I need to make a poster that says that, you know, look into who am I, meaning where did I come from? What are my family's histories and stories? Very well said. And I thank you both for your time and sharing about our Isaba Omanili Tushka, our Choctaw Light Horsemen. May we always remember their hard work and service. Yakuki. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together, we build success. Because together, we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Choc Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Choc Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechoctalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.